Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's episode is a special broadcast with Oscar Stewart. He was the protector of Poway. He chased a gunman out of the Poway Synagogue in California. We need people to understand that we have a responsibility to protect one another. Oscar, welcome. So I'd like to get started with a lot of people say that they would run into the line of fire, but you actually did that. Yeah, so. (laughs) What is that like? You know, I really didn't think about it. I reacted. I like to you know, emphasize that, that it was a reaction. I've talked to people about it, and, you know, you either have to be all in or you have to be all out. There's no half, you know, half-stepping. You have to do it. You know, the biggest thing I can emphasize is that, you know, try to get away. And if you're not going to get away, you've got to do something. Don't just stand there and hide or cower because the outcome isn't going to be good. That's what my experience teaches me. So I engaged the individual. And, you know, I was lucky and I was able to put fear into him and he ran away. Thinking back, that's probably my, that was my intent, but I really didn't plan anything. You know, there's, you know, you hear people say, oh, I, I'll do this, I'll do that. A lot of times all you can really depend on is your training and your experience. Because you want to like, you know, in the army, they teach you to plan, 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 train, 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 train like you're going to fight, fight like you trained. And that's what you're going to do. So I basically reacted the way I was trained. It was just instinctive. There was no thinking involved in any of it. I just did what I had to do. As I got near him, I looked for a weapon, but there was no weapon. So I just kept using the weapons I had at hand. And that was my, I was intimidating. I presented a force that he was going to have to deal with. I didn't come up to him and say, stop that or please. I, you know, I, I basically made threats, very boisterous threats. I used my voice from deep inside. There was no, like, you're going to offend anybody. This is going to you're gonna yell and you're gonna tell him that you're gonna come hurt him. And that's what I did the entire time. Thinking back, that's what I did and, that's what, and it worked. I mean, it probably helped that he didn't have any training, he didn't have any experience. The biggest take is I can get from it is that, you know, you just have to present a strong force. You gotta be a hard target. That was a catchphrase. You wanna be the hardest target on the road. You wanna be the hardest target walking through the city. They'll think twice about attacking you. His reaction was, I'm out of here. He had no more ammunition in his magazine. He tried to reload. I basically emphasized again that I'm going to hurt you if you don't get out of it, you know, and he just dropped his weapon to his side and he ran out the door. And you yourself were not armed. No, I was not armed. No, I wasn't armed. Like I said, I, you know, I want to present a hard target. I was, I, as I was running towards him, I looked for a fire extinguisher, a, someone's cane, anything, but I was not armed. No. Why weren't you? Never in my, my wildest dreams, I never thought I would have to be armed in a synagogue. You know, it's a reality that we face today. You know, I, you know, I have a brother-in-law who lives in Israel and he carries a pistol. And, you know, there you think, okay, yeah, that's, that's a logical course of events. You know, I have to take my firearm to synagogue because some wacko may come in here. I never thought that would happen here in the United States of America. And a little bit of my military background, I've did services in foreign countries, and I didn't think I had to do it there either. You know, it was just never 
Like I did Yom Kippur service in Saddam Hussein's palace in Baghdad, uh, Rosh Hashanah in Tikrit in another palace, Seder's in tents in the middle of the desert, you know, Pesach Seder. And I never felt that I had to be armed. I had my weapon with me. We all did, but they weren't loaded. There was no, it wasn't locked and loaded. There was a magazine probably in the well, but there was no, it wasn't locked and loaded. You never thought that you would have to react in that, that way in a situation like that. Did you feel safe being Jewish in those places? Yes, absolutely. Wow. I never had any fear about being Jewish in those places. So I had an interpreter in Iraq and he told me, you know, he says, uh, don't worry about the Arabs. They'll respect you, don't, but worry about, he pointed to some Pakistani third country nationals. He said he didn't like them for whatever reason. I never hid that I was Jewish. It never was an issue. I guess they respected a strong image or a strong sense. Or maybe the fact that I was carrying an M4 probably helped also, but you know, you know, I never had, a, I never felt fear in those places. You were outwardly Jewish and you were observant throughout your whole military stay? I mean, as, yeah, as outwardly, you know, as outwardly as a uniform will allow, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, I didn't walk around with tits hanging out or anything, but I had a kippah or, I, or I'd have my headgear, you know, it depends on what it is. So in the event where I wasn't wearing my, my helmet or my, or, a, or an outside cover, I would have a kippah on and people would notice it, but no one really looked, no one really thought twice. Every once in a while you'd get somebody look at you like, wow, what's, what's up with this guy or whatever. But it was mostly Americans. It wasn't, it wasn't the Iraqis. They just took it in stride. That's really interesting. I'm also interested in, you know, you've seen fire fight. Yeah, many times. I'd say I'd taken fire at least, uh, you know, a hundred times when I was in Iraq. So, but that's, that was part of it. And it wasn't like, face-to-face -face fire. It was more like they were on the other, you know, they were in the distance, you, you know, got contact from, you know, two o'clock. You know, you look at two o'clock, there's nobody there. There's a building, so you return fire to the building. Well, there was a time in, in uh, Ramadi where I did take fire from two guys, but I took care of them very quickly. They were, they were eliminated very fast. So I didn't even think about it. It was like no, no big deal. But have you seen people cowered out? Oh yeah, I've seen people, yeah. I've seen, you know, we take fire and you'll see You'll see, you know, like I said, you got to either be all in or be all or get the hell out of there. You know, some of us would return fire. Others would get like behind the Humvee or whatever and put the rifle over the top and just start spraying. But you don't really think about that. You don't, you know, you don't fault them. You don't know what you're going to do any one second of the day. You may react different the next time or you may, you know, you may be having a bad day or whatever. And the first and your first instinct is to get down and you got down and you read some people's first instinct is to return fire. And that's what I, that's, that seems to be my instinct is when I, is to return fire. So let's talk about Poway. Okay, and yeah. did you ever feel like you wanted to run too? Yeah, yeah. So I think I've mentioned this a few times in other interviews. So the first thing I did, I heard the gunshots and I'm like, that sounds like, a, like an M16. What the hell is that, right? I'm like, I thought it was someone playing a prank for some reason. And then I look over to, you know, and I see everybody running. So I'm like, my first, my first thing is to follow the crowd. So I ran to the door. This is where you're come to your moment of deciding of decision, but I didn't, it was not a conscious decision. I look out the door and maybe I saw kids out there. Who knows why I did it? But uh, excuse me, I get really emotional about these things. So I just turned around. And then I, at that point, I ran back away from the door and I, I saw him through the door of the sanctuary and he was in the, in the foyer there. And I yelled at him really loud, <laughs> really forcefully. And I used obscenities and he just like, he was like in shock. I, he, I saw his face. It was like, whoa, like a light turned on. It was like a different guy than the first guy I saw when I first saw him. Immediately, he was like in shock. And as I'm running towards him, he picks up his rifle. He fires twice at me. 
you know, what's funny is my mind didn't see that. I remember the interview I gave to the police officer afterward. I said, I, yeah, I saw the muzzle flash. He asked me, did, he, did you see him fire? I think that's a standard question. Did you see this guy fire? Because he wanted to make sure they had the right guy or whatever. And I said, yes, I saw two muzzle flashes. He fired down the hall. And then when, later on when I was in, uh, he did, no one told me anything, but later on when I'm in a preliminary hearing, I see the video, security video, and it, he fired at me. But I didn't see the bullets come at, but I did see the muzzle flashes come out of the rifle barrel. I remember that, two muzzle flashes. And so I'm running towards him, and as I get closer, you know, he's going to change, trying to change a magazine. And I told him, you know, I used some more forceful words and a little bit more, you know, anger. And he turned, he dropped, like I said, he, his weapon was on a tactical sling. He dropped his weapon to his side and ran out the front door. And I chased him out the front door. When he got in his car, he was fumbling for his keys or he was doing something. So I'm banging on the side of the window of the car because I'm going to get him out. That's in my, you know, that's one thing I know I was in my thought process. That's one thing I know for sure is that I was going to get him out. And so I'm trying to break the window, but I didn't have, like I said, I didn't have anything. So I'm hitting it with a fist and I never realized how hard it is to break a window with your fist. You know, you're watching TV and movies and stuff. They, and then they drag, you know, that didn't happen. My, my hand just bounced off the window. Um, and at this point, the, the off-duty Border Patrol agent yells behind me and says, clear out, fall back, I have a gun. And at that point, I fell behind the, the trunk of the car, and he fired five times, and he, and he missed, but whatever. You know, maybe he was shooting at the car. I don't know what he was doing. But, um, and then the guy sped off at this point. So at this point, between, two, between three people, we managed to get the license plate number. Somebody had a cell phone, and they called the police, and the police, so we already have reports of him. He sped down the street and he went about, I'd say, a five-minute drive, three-minute drive, and he called the police and gave up on it. You know, he said, I'm, at this point, I'm giving up. I think at this point, his plan had fallen apart. His whole, you know, TV show, movie, video game idea was over. He realized that somebody's going to die. If it wasn't us trying to, because now he already had two people trying to kill him, and we weren't even law enforcement. You know, I think he realized that, you know, this is over, I'm gonna die. So he gave, he called the police on himself and gave up and was standing, from what I understand, he was standing outside his vehicle with his hands up when the police officer had arrived, the first unit arrived. He was a canine officer, I remember that. Oh my God, what did you think when you heard that they got him? I didn't know. So we hadn't gotten any information. The first thing that happened after he left is I remember seeing someone shot. I have like a, a knack, I don't know if it's training again. I see things that other people don't see, it's kind of creepy. I can see, like, if you drop a quarter, I'll see it, you know, from across the room and stuff like that. Or I, if you drop a pen, I got a weird story. If you want to really hear, we'll go into it in a minute. We have time about my seeing stuff. So I, um, I saw the woman, she had been Lori Kay. She was shot. I saw her laying on the ground. So I ran back and I, and I started doing CPR. At this point, a doctor, Furman, Gil Furman, he was a, he's a retired neonatal neonatologist. He comes out and he's doing the the compressions and I'm doing the breaths and then he gets tired so I'm doing both the compressions and the breaths and this is going really quickly you know because I think in time the time span is happening really fast but I realized that as I'm doing the compressions she was dead because there was no blood you know and I'd seen plenty of people killed and um, if there's no blood they're dead you know they died instantly I, but I kept on doing it you know for whatever reason I um and then her husband comes out and takes over at doing the breaths and I'm still doing the compressions and then I think he says, you know, let's try something else. Is there an AED? And I, you know, again, I see things. I said, there's one on the wall. So I jump up and I go and grab the AED. And, you know, in reality, it wasn't going to help anyway, because I think that just restarts your rhythm. It doesn't really restart your heart like, on, you know, the paddles on TV. And so she, at this point, he realizes it's his wife. He 
lets out a groan and faints. Oh my God. And within like seconds after that, the police come in. The first two police officers come in. So I immediately, I, you know, I put up my arms because I had a, I still had this, I took the pistol away from the border patrol agent for some reason. Maybe I had more conscious of what to do than he did. Maybe because he, you know, if you being law enforcement, he's, you train for things, but I just took it away from him and I set it on the ground next to me. And so when the police came in, I immediately stood up and put my hands up. The police said, what's going on? And I said, I'm trying to give her CPR. And then, you know, somebody else told them what was going on. They, they take everybody outside and then somebody's looking for their daughter. So I go look for the daughter. And then I find my wife and she's like, you know, she's telling me what's going on and, you know, she's happy. And she says, I thought I was going to lose another husband. You know, that's what she said to me. She's a widow. So from her first husband. So she, uh, she said, I, was, I thought I was going to lose another husband. And then so we, you know, we go back and then they, they put us in the, they send us immediately. They try to lock the place down in case somebody, he was coming back or whatever. So we end up in the Greek Orthodox church next door and we're there. And then, you know, that's when I start hearing the, like the, uh, the spiritual side of things. So the priest comes out and he tells me, I heard you. He said that he was having services because it was Greek Orthodox Easter was, you know, it was like around the same Pesach time. It was the last day of Pesach. So he says, yeah, I, I heard you. And it sounded like, like three men, the boy, you know, it didn't sound like a one person. He said, it sounded like a three men. So immediately I thought of, uh, of, you know, when you go to Sunday school, they teach you that the Egyptians were confounded by a great noise when they left Mitzrayim, when the, when the Jews left Mitzrayim. And that's the first thing that came into my head. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's really magnified. I'm kind of a spiritual person and it just like, it just, you know, it just resonates with me. You know, I, maybe I didn't have any control in what I was doing. This was all the hand of God, you know. And meant to be. And meant to be, right. You know, you think back to like, wow, why, did, why do things happen to you? So like there was back to Iraq, it was one Rosh Kodesh, right? And we have to do extra prayers on Rosh Kodesh. We have to do Musaf and Hallel in the morning. And there was a, we had a convoy that day and it was a pretty common practice to be the first convoy out of the fob. Cause that was, the, they never, IEDs never hit the first convoy. So we're like, you know, they're like, hurry up, come on, you, you're, you're praying. But I always had to do it. You know, I had to go back to filling on and do my, you know, my morning prayer. So this day I had to do a little bit extra. And so we end up like my, my sergeant, my, you know, platoon sergeant's like, man, we're going to be late. We're not going to be first. And they're all freaking out. And, you know, people get really superstitious, especially in, in war. So we line up and we're the second convoy there. And this is the creepy, <laughs> creepier, mystical part. The first convoy was hit by IEDs as they went down. They were going to Baghdad. So they, on the road to Baghdad, they got hit by an IED. And we were, we were I, I mean, I even saw the explosion in the distance. We were about three miles behind them. And you see the, the size of the explosion. Oh my God. And I saw the explosion on the highway. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, we get by the area that, was, that we, when our convoy gets there, we just blaze through there. But you see burned out vehicles and people trying to, you know, the, the ambulance and stuff was gone already. But you see the burned out vehicle there. So after that, you know, my, my platoon sergeant, my captain, my first sergeant, they were all like, whatever you want to pray, we can, you can pray, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good, you know, do, do what you have to do, no problem. I, like I say, I think, you know, God puts you in positions and he prepares you for these positions that you're going to be in. I always felt that God was protecting me and that he showed me there that he was protecting me. And maybe this is the reason why I was meant to be there. You know, I, I, I feel bad that one life was lost. But, you know, the FBI kept reassuring me that I saved many lives that day. What was it like talking to the FBI? To me, it wasn't that big of a deal because I've been debriefed many times. You always do after action reports in the military. So after, you know, like I said, I've been engaged, engaged the enemy many times, engaged by the enemy, I should say. So I was used to, you know, answering questions and giving them as much detail as I had to give them for action, you know, for lessons learned. What are we going to do right the next time that we didn't do this time? 
And so I was, it was very easy to speak to the FBI. And like I said, I have a very good memory and I see a lot of details. So they were very, they were, you know, they, they were happy to talk to me because I gave them really good details and a, wit and a very good witness statement. They were like, you were like spot on. Like I remember the color of the car. I remember the make and model of the car. I remembered what he was wearing. I remembered his height. His, you know, they asked me what was his ethnicity, and I said he looks like uh, he could be, you know, anything from the Mediterranean. He doesn't look like, uh, you know, like a Swedish guy, but he doesn't look like an Arab. He could be like Italian, Spanish. He could be Greek. He has that, you know, that complexion and his hair and his height. And he was wearing. I remembered everything. It was it was eerie or creepy or maybe it was just cool or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever you want to call it. But it, yeah, I had. So the FBI was very happy to speak to me, but. Uh, I'd already given that information to the police officers prior to that, so it was, uh, I'd already gone through it a few times by this point. Let's talk about, too, like you had just moved to Poway. Like this was your first Passover in the area. Right, yeah, exactly. So that's another, you know, bizarre thing. So, you know, I've been involved with Chabad before as a kid. You know, you, 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 when I was growing up in San Antonio, there was a Chabad there, uh, Rabbi Block was his name, you know, and I would attend periodically. All the guys my age did, you know, we'd go like, you know, one weekend or twice a month, we'd go to, to Chabad. Because it was cool, you know, it was like a nice place to be. There was Chabad back in the 80s was pretty, a pretty cool place to go, you know. So we would spend time between my, my synagogue, Rotve Shalom, and the Chabad, you know, we'd go to both, we'd, on the weekend, we'd go do that on the Shabbat, you know, for Shabbos. So I'd been involved in Chabad, and I, you know, my wife had never. She's like from from birth, you know, grew up in Rogers Park, went to Ida Crown. You know, she's like a modern Orthodox girl. And I said, you know, you're not going to like Poway. You're not going to like Chabad. But we were living in, um, in San Diego, and there's two synagogues there, Orthodox synagogues. One is in La Jolla, which is a look up La Jolla price tags, and you'll know what I'm talking about. And then we, the other one was in the San Diego State area, and she didn't like it. And I said, she goes, is there any other synagogues? I'm sure I said, there's probably a Chabad somewhere. You know, there's Chabad everywhere. So she says, okay. So she says, let's look at Poway. And I'm like, Poway, you know, because my, my daughter, my stepdaughter, she went to a beauty school basically in Poway. So my wife had taken her a few times. She goes, I really like the neighborhood. I'm like, okay, so we'll look. So we looked around. And so around July, we started, we purchased a house and then we moved in in August. So like I said, this was our first Passover. We, we, we went to Chabad on Purim, I remember. The first time and my wife says, yeah, I like it. I'm like, what? You like it? I didn't think you were going to like this. This is like really not what you're used to. This is nothing like Kins or, or Torah. This is way different. But she said, I like it. If it's okay with you, we'd like to move here. And I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. Whatever. Yeah, I'm good with it. And it's that like, morning, didn't you ask her if you should? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's another thing. So the whole... Be armed? Yeah, the whole Pesach. So the night before, it was the last Seder, right? So there's this Hallel, Psalm 118. In English, it tells you that uh, you'll be surrounded by bees and I will extinguish them. And that, you know, in my mind, I think about it, that's what it sounds like when you get shot at. When bullets whiz by your head, they sound like bees. You know, they don't, it's not a bang. The bang happened a long time ago. And it just like, wow, it brought me to tears. And my wife's like, what in the hell is wrong with you? You're like, you're crying at the Seder. What's wrong with you? You've never done that before. And I said, and I, and I, you know, I gave it up to maybe I was thinking about my mom or maybe my dad. Or, you know, or maybe the fact that I missed all my buddies from Skokie or, or, you know, who knows, but, you know, I didn't, I just gave it up to something else. You know, maybe it was, it was God telling me you're going to be okay. So that morning I get up and I have a pistol. I own a pistol. And I said, I'm going to take it to Shul because I talked to the rabbi before and he goes, yeah, bring your pistol. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. If you want to bring your, if you feel safe with a pistol, bring your pistol. And my wife's, no, you're going to get arrested. You know, you're, 
you're, you know, you're not supposed to be open carrying in California. I said, you can open carry in California. You just expect to be detained is what the Secretary of State says. She said, no, 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 don't take your gun. People think you're crazy. And I'm like, okay, so I left my pistol at home that day. Do you think you would have handled yourself differently if you I had it? I probably would have done the same thing, but I think the outcome would have been different. I have weapon discipline, so I wouldn't have just randomly pulled the trigger. I would have chose my target and engaged it. What was that day like before the shots happened? You know, when we go on to the next part of this, uh, I will probably give more detail on that, but it was, they were caught with their, their pants down. Yeah, that's in my opinion. You know, I, uh, this is just my opinion. I don't want to point fingers or issue or, or, or fault or anything. It's just that, you know, things could have been done much different. Like it goes back to being a hard target. You want to be a hard target. You don't want to be the soft target. Because there's so many synagogues in the area. There's a reform synagogue, there's a conservative synagogue, and then there's Chabad of Poway. So on the way from where he lives, he lives in what's called Rancho Penisquitos, this community, a neighborhood of San Diego. He could have passed the other two synagogues on the way to, to Chabad. I'm not saying he did, but you know, I'm assuming that he did, and they were hard targets. No one expected anything like this to ever happen. You know, that year was the year that Pittsburgh had happened, but I think everyone thought that was just a fluke. That was a crazy guy who lost his mind. You know, he was nuts. He was crazy. I don't think people are crazy. I think they do what they intend to do. They may be off the edge, and that'll give them the impetus to do it, but people are going to do what they're going to do. Like, the fine line between insanity and rationale is easily, it's not easy, you know, it's, it's there. It's easily crossed. So I think this guy rationally decided to do what he did. What was it like seeing him in court? Oh, oh, it was angering. He was acting like this was a joke. He was giving hand signals to the, the deceased family, to Lori Kay's family. He's going over there, giving them the hang loose sign and just, just obnoxious things. And he's winking at me on the stand. You know, he's like, he was all smug and, you know, laying, you know, I, if I was in front of a judge, I would be on my best behavior. I mean, I would be top tall. He was laying back like this is no big deal. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what he was thinking. I can't imagine. I, I, can't, I can't put my, myself into his mind because the, the guy's totally out of me. I would never be that person. So I can't imagine what he was thinking. And how is it for you like hearing from Lori's friends and family? I was just upset. I was very upset. You know, it was um, my one regret is that I didn't save her life, that I didn't prevent her from being killed. That was a big thing to me. You know, it was like it weighed hard on me. It was like. I wish I could have been just more proactive or more, I would have done something different or done something sooner. You know, maybe I would have, but from what I understand, from the video footage, she was, as soon as he went in the door, he shot her. She was the first person killed. So she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's really hard. Yeah, it, 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 it weighs on me periodically. You know, I think about, that's about the only thing that really, you know, like PTSD type thing. That's the only thing that really bothers me is that I didn't, that I didn't act differently prior to the whole incident. You know, the first thing I should have done, I didn't do. That, that weighs on me sometimes, knowing, knowing what I know. You know, it's like, but that goes, that again goes back to maybe you never think that's gonna happen in the United States. You never think that's gonna happen to you at a religious service. So maybe that's why I said, oh, you know, I'm just being paranoid. I'm just being, maybe I just got too much military paranoia going here. This is America. This is the 21st century. This is, you know, the land of the free, the home of the, you know, it's not, what do we have to worry about? This is the greatest country in the world in, that's treated us the greatest in history. So I don't have to, what are we worried about? Maybe that's not the case anymore. Are you able to go to shul now and not Oh, worry? yeah, yeah, absolutely. I go to shul. I don't worry. I, um, but it's a different mentality now. You know, it's, we have a, at my synagogue, we have an armed guard. There's a couple of other people that are armed there. 
and then we, we also take defensive measures. I think that's important to point out. You know, you don't want to be in the fight. You don't want the fight to come to you. You want to stop it before it happens. You know, like I said, you want to be the hard target. You don't want to be the, the convoy. This is back to Iraq. You don't want to be the convoy with a guy hanging out, looking at his iPhone or playing with a game. You want to be the guy with the rifles out, ready, locked and loaded. You want to be that convoy. Because everybody in the end, no matter what, 99% of people don't want to die. So they're going to pick the next target, the next soft target. And you don't, so you don't want to be the soft target. What would you say your biggest lesson in all of this was? Take things seriously. Take this very, very seriously. This is going to happen. If you let it happen, it's going to happen. You want to prevent it from happening, but if it doesn't, you got to be prepared to stop it as soon as possible. You want to limit the loss of life. You want to limit the injuries. You want to limit the, the effect it's going to have on people for life. You know, these, these, there was kids there, and I know they're not the same. You know, these kids are going to grow up, you know, for the next 50, 60, 70 years different than they would have been you know i'm for, for sure i'm different now and i mean i got what 30 years left on earth now, and i'm for the next 30 years i'm going to see things differently so you want to prevent that you want to you know like but i said you want to limit the loss you want to mitigate it before it even happens that's the lesson you want to be the hardest target there is you want to be you know you want to be the citadel you don't want to be the shack do you want to finish up and tell me the story about the pen there's a pen. It wasn't a pen. It's a. It's a crazy. It's a crazy thing. So when I in Iraq, you know, I developed a sense. So one time we're driving down the freeway. I was in Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm driving. My son played hockey, and I tell my son, "There's a your team's hockey bag on the side of the freeway." I'm going 70 miles an hour, driving down the freeway, and I saw the hockey bag on the side of the freeway. And he's like, "You are insane, Dad. There's no freaking hockey bag." So I pull over, I, you know, get on the freeway, I jump out, and I go back and pick it up and throw it in the car. And then I give it to the kid who lost it because it was from his hockey team. And he's like, where'd you find this? I said, on the side of the freeway. And everybody's like, how in the heck did you see that? And I just, you know, like I said, that's just something I developed. That's part of, you know, you get in a situation, you see things. I'm sure that the police officers here, they see things that you and I don't see. They see people acting erratically when they're driving. We don't see that. You know, if you're a hunter, you see, the tr you see where the deer went. We don't see that. We're not hunters. You know, if you're a, you're a store owner, you see the guy come in and you know this guy's a little shady, so you're going to keep a little extra eye on him. You just develop that. That's just a vocation. Wow. Well, that is a beautiful story. And um, thank you for everything that you've done and thank you for your service. Oh, it was my honor. It was my honor to, to do, to serve the country. I tell people that, you know, that's my, you know, and I want people to know that we serve our country. So definitely. Thank you for running into the line of fire. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Oscar Stewart gives you the insight of people that are trained to help other people for their protection. Whether you're in the Army or you're a policeman or if you're a fireman, look at how many jobs are out there where people are trained to think and sacrifice themselves for a cause or for other people. It's something that maybe all of us should have training in where we have a different philosophy of not just me first, but where we think of others as just as important as our own lives. That alertness or readiness is an unbelievable trait to have. To go through life with that kind of perception is also something that we should all possess. How many people, if something is going on, hide under the covers? hide into a closet because they're scared to death of facing certain realities 
that could be devastating where they run and hide. And maybe that's what you have to do if you're not able to act. But those that are trained and developed that they can act do so without hesitation. How about the people on that plane that landed in the field in uh, Pennsylvania after the 9-11 attack on New York and on the Capitol building where they took that plane down and did whatever they had to do to uh, save maybe thousands of lives and put a stop to the terrorism, even at the sacrifice of their own lives. This is also part of what a parent will do. They see their child is going to get run over by a car. What makes them jolt in front of the car and push the child away, even at the cost of their own life? That's called unselfishness. That's also caused where there's a bigger value in that type of attitude, where it's not just, again, all about ourselves. What about the fact that he went and faced the killer in court? I think that he followed through from beginning to end. And isn't that what we also have to do in life, is that we have to follow through and not quit in the middle of a job. We have to follow through and see things to the end is also a a trait that is not only notable by him, but many others, where they want to see justice through from square one to square 100. And that's very important also in life to complete a mission and not leave it up in the middle, in the air, and for someone else to do. Take responsibility and finish what you started. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 